Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 154, Ferdinand Sachs-Coburg-Gotha. Now, no new patrons because I recorded the last episode yesterday, but as always, huge thank you to all the patrons and donators and even just people who send emails, meet up with me and Sofia. You're all wonderful. It's been so great to have your support doing this project. So let's get into it. Last time, we saw how in the aftermath of Battenberg's departure, a regency was formed to oversee elections for a new Grand National Assembly which would choose a new monarch. However, Russia fervently opposed these measures at every turn, using its agents to openly oppose the government and even support several potential revolts. The prospect of Russian or even Ottoman invasion seemed very real. But Stefan Stambolov stepped up to resist. In the process, he also began taking the kind of anti-democratic and repressive measures of his predecessors basically to a whole new level. And with this, he did win overwhelming support in the new Grand National Assembly as Russia finally broke off diplomatic relations and refused to recognize it as legal. Now, as the Grand National Assembly searches for a new prince for Bulgaria, and several candidates have already refused the job, the assembly is awaiting news from its agents dispatched throughout Europe. And let's be clear, this by now is a far from easy task. Everyone knew what the role had done to Alexander Battenberg, and that basically if you accepted the role, the possibility of being overthrown in a coup or even assassinated were very real. So, it's unsurprising that the representatives were you know, initially unable to find anyone, despite joking themselves that they were looking even under rocks and trees. Now, Perry notes that there are many competing versions of the story of just how they first found Ferdinand, but he recounts what he believes is the most credible kind of set of circumstances, writing the following, quote, On the evening of the 1st of December, 1886, at the opera, an Austrian reserve army major named von Lab, during the first intermission, sent a message to Kalchev, stating, quote, In Vienna, one may find a young prince from a great family with relatives in every European court. He is Ferdinand Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, a better candidate you cannot dream of, end quote. According to Kalchev's unpublished memoirs, he and the prince were introduced, and after an exchange of compliments, Ferdinand indicated that he would accept the position of Prince of Bulgaria. End quote for that whole section. Now, what is clear is that Ferdinand himself actually reached out to the Bulgarian delegation to express interest. However, he later attempted to create the impression that the opposite had occurred and that he had been sort of summoned by fate, so to speak, uh, for obvious kind of you know more propaganda reasons. It just makes him look better. But okay, so you know most most people who've been offered this job have said absolutely not. But why, who is this Ferdinand guy and why is he so interested? Well, let's take a step back and talk a bit about his biography up to this point. Ferdinand Maximilian Karl Leopold Maria of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha 
was born in Coburg Palace in the Coburg Palace in Vienna in 1861. Uh, there's a picture of that palace in the accompanying blog post for this episode, back when Bulgaria was basically in the midst of its fight over an independent church. All right, so 1861. Now, Ferdinand was descended from German, Hungarian, and French nobility. But in particular, his grandfather on his mother's side had been king of France, and he was also related to the king of Belgium, the king of Portugal, and even Queen Victoria. So, you know, that that uh, Austrian major, I think he was, wasn't lying. He, a very well-connected guy. It should come as no surprise that he was Catholic, you know, being from <laughs> a bunch of Catholic dynasties. And, well, Ferdinand grew up in this enormous Coburg palace that I mentioned, while spending a fair amount of time in other parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, including his family's lands in Hungary. Uh, they're now part of, part of Slovakia. And in general, he and his family traveled quite extensively in his youth. When he got older, he served in the Austrian army as well. And while traveling so much, being in the multi-ethnic, multilinguistic uh, court and empire of Austria-Hungary, no surprise he spoke many languages, being essentially fluent in French, German, Hungarian, Italian, and English before eventually learning Bulgarian. So, talented guy, at least linguistically. Now, Ferdinand, therefore, sounds, sounds like a pretty standard European nobleman, but he was, in fact, quite the character. His fingers with expensive rings were kind of famous. People would note hey, these delicate fingers just, just absolutely overloaded with nice rings. He delighted in fine food. He was a deeply passionate botanist and ornithologist, meaning he loved to study plants and birds. In fact, he regularly stuffed and kept birds and corresponded with many of the top naturalists in Europe. Funnily enough, he often faced a dilemma when he killed a bird, whether to eat it or stuff it although apparently he usually chose the stuffing option. Indeed, as we'll discuss more well, much, much later, the current Bulgarian Natural History Museum basically started off as his personal collection, so you could see, you can get an idea of how extensive it was. And in fact, Ferdinand had actually, by this point, already taken a trip to Brazil, where he traveled extensively on the Amazon and discovered and named a number of species. So he was more than just, you know, a kind of hobby naturalist. Like he took it quite seriously and was actually fairly well respected for being pretty talented in that field and very knowledgeable. Now, Ferdinand also had a passion for history, which fueled his very intense pride and ego as he was descended from many, many prominent historical figures. And then alongside this, he also had an intense interest in the occult, which was quite popular at the time. So, for example, he once declined to sign an important treaty because it was on the 13th of the month, deciding to wait an additional day. Now, my wife rightly pointed out that she thinks that Ferdinand would have fit in marvelously in the kind of Portland, Oregon hipster scene with his interest in like taxidermy and the occult and his, well, we'll get to the rest later, but like, yeah, he, he, it's kind of amusing to imagine him as a Portland, Oregon hipster. That's not all about him. He also loved to tinker with cars and trains. So he, he liked mechanics and engines just as much as, well, biology and the natural world. So in some respects, he was a bit of a manly man in, in certain areas. He loved to hunt. He loved to drive fast cars and go on adventures in the jungle. But he was also widely seen as, quote, delicate, eccentric, and effeminate, and was 
widely accepted that he was bisexual. So, you know, he loved to dress up. He had kind of an ego. He loved fine foods. And, you know, he was interested in you know, collecting butterflies and birds and things. But then, yeah, he, he also loved engines and fast cars and this kind of stuff. So, you know, he, he was really a complex character. And in some ways, yeah, he, he was this kind of uh, effeminate, eccentric, delicate guy. And in other ways, he was, uh, yeah, a bit of a manly man. And he really kind of blended all those together into this peculiar character. Um, but overall, he was extremely intelligent. No one denied that, I think. But often proud to the point of extreme arrogance. He was a man of science in the future, as well as a man deeply rooted in Europe's royal past and a pretty ardent monarchist. But for now, he is a 27-year-old man ready to take on the task which effectively broke his predecessor. But he's not prince yet. The Bulgarian representatives quickly sent a telegram back to Sofia to inform them that Ferdinand was indeed interested. So they had a candidate. But the process was far from over. But at least now the gears were beginning to turn. So, for example, Ferdinand sent a publicist to Sofia to start kind of building a positive reputation for him. And the man, this is an interesting part, he was a Hungarian who had sold grain to Bulgaria from his estates in Hungary. And in general, his main tools for, you know, being a publicist were bribery and blackmail. So we can just safely say that's the seed for a potential future problem. But the biggest challenge right now was gaining the support of the great powers, something which Ferdinand himself stated was a precondition for him finally formally accepting the role. Now, Ferdinand didn't have any enthusiastic backers, but the emperor and senior leadership in Austria-Hungary, they were okay with his candidacy. Ferdinand assumed that the Tsar of Russia would support him, noting that the noting to the Bulgarian delegation that he had been very cordially received by the Tsar and considered him a good acquaintance. However, Tsar Alexander had a different idea about this and simply stated that, quote, the candidacy is as ridiculous as the person. In other words, he thought that Ferdinand was an absurd character and that the idea that he would be Prince of Bulgaria was equally absurd. Indeed, the Tsar had met Ferdinand at the at Tsar Alexander's own coronation three years previously and actually intensely disliked him for a number of reasons, including his dandyism, i.e. his kind of excessive focus on fashion and his appearance. So it's unclear whether Ferdinand was lying and knew that the Tsar disliked him or whether Ferdinand was kind of deluding himself. But yeah, he, he thinks Russia is going to be supportive. Russia is not supportive. France is a key Russian ally, and they basically go along with whatever the Tsar wishes. Germany basically wants Russia to be happy. It doesn't want conflict with Russia, so it's kind of going along with that. Austria-Hungary is trying to be kind with Germany. And so, yeah, kind of because of all these complex European alliances and relationships, no one is enthusiastic about Ferdinand. Ah, but what about Great Britain? Well, Queen Victoria was even more blunt, writing of her cousin Ferdinand that, quote, He is totally unfit, delicate, eccentric, and effeminate. He should be stopped at once, end quote. So when I referred to him as delicate, eccentric, and effeminate before, I was quoting Queen Victoria. She went on to say that, quote, It is important that it should be known that I and my family have nothing to do with the absurd pretension of this foolish young cousin of mine, end quote. So it's not looking great for Ferdinand, right? 
it's, it's, it's funny, a little bit like Alexander Battenberg, right? On paper, he looks like an outstanding candidate, but once he's actually put forward, it turns out that uh, there's all kinds of potential problems. So, as I mentioned, Bismarck is very concerned with improving relations with Russia and worried that Ferdinand would hurt that as well as just generally make a mess in Bulgaria. He doesn't trust his political instincts. So, Bismarck is opposed. And, well, in general, at this point, most European power brokers are at best amused by Ferdinand's candidacy and at worst outright opposed. They felt this weird contrast between Ferdinand's quirky and almost effeminate style and the very harsh down-in-the-dirt realities of Bulgarian politics. And to many, that contrast made his whole candidacy almost comical. In fact, these words from a Russian diplomat in Vienna give a good sense of how most saw Ferdinand at this point. The diplomat wrote, quote, Prince Ferdinand cut a rather strange figure at the Austrian court and in high Viennese society. Remarks were made about his Bourbon nose, and everyone laughed at his effeminate manner, his exaggerated elegance, and his love for jewels and knickknacks. He was supposed to possess inclinations which harmonized with his appearance and manner. We all know what he means there. Moreover, he did not possess a gift of making himself liked. His sly and suspicious expression prejudiced people against him. The more he became aware of his unpopularity, the more did he secretly indulge in venomous and bitter thoughts, and yet nurse in his heart ambitions and schemes which would have evoked shrieks of laughter if he had ever dared to disclose them. It was only from his mother that he ever got encouragement and sympathy. He was the only being that she ever really loved and who had any influence over him. End quote. So, yeah, you, you get an idea of how Ferdinand was viewed in Vienna. But that last bit brings us to the topic of Ferdinand's mother. Now, we might wonder, and many of his contemporaries did, why on earth Ferdinand would want to leave his comfortable life in Vienna for, frankly, dirty, muddy Sofia. Remember, at this point, Sofia is still a city of mostly dirt streets. Now, that really comes down to his mother. Princess Clementine of Orléans, son of King Louis-Philippe of France and great-granddaughter of Empress Maria Theresa of Austria. So, no surprise, a staunch monarchist. But this incredibly royal and impressive pedigree instilled in her, and she then therefore instilled in her son, a burning ambition for power. Right? This is a woman descended from many, many famous monarchs. Clementine was still bitter over the fact that her father, the King of France, had been forced to abdicate by the Revolution of 1848. And when she married Ferdinand's father, she assumed that he would eventually become a king and was very disappointed that that had never happened. And so she kind of channeled this deep disappointment about her father and her husband into her son and saw him as her best chance of kind of reclaiming the glory that she felt belonged to her and her family. So, two things here. First, Ferdinand's reputation as a bit of an oddball was definitely hurting his candidacy. He was far from popular in Vienna, and his affectations turned many people off. But second, we have yet another case where, again, as I mentioned, a candidate seems ideal. Military background, related to many European houses, impressive pedigree, but is still widely opposed. In other words, it looks like this could be Alexander Battenberg all over again. And, well, Russia's main newspaper 
opened up to the news of his candidacy with a full broadside against him, writing, quote, It is self-evident that Russia will never agree to the election of this prince. As a Catholic, a relative of the Queen of England, and of the Austrian imperial family, Prince Ferdinand has no recommendation which would allow our government to let him go to the Bulgarian throne. A formal, unconditional refusal is the only thing that this lieutenant in Austrian service can expect from St. Petersburg. End quote. So yeah, pe- people are not kind of on the fence about Ferdinand in general. Still, for now, the Bulgarian delegation and Ferdinand do have a kind of preliminary agreement. The delegates would continue to tour Europe to gather support for his candidacy, while Ferdinand would continue to write to the Tsar of Russia to argue for his position. So, as the end of 1886 came, Bulgaria had at least a candidate for its very troubled throne. And meanwhile, back in Sofia, the political machinations had continued unabated while all this was going on. In November, Stambolov uncovered a plot by military cadets at the Sofia Academy, as well as some officers in the city. Stambolov knew the organizers of the plot and basically went over to his house to have a drink and reminisce about old times, while loyal troops surrounded the military academy and basically nipped the coup in the bud. Stambolov was quite hurt that this old friend of his had led this coup, But, well, that's Bulgarian politics at the moment. Almost immediately afterwards, yet another plot was uncovered by officers based in Ruse, Silistra, and Schumann, which were basically centers of pro-Russian activity. But while the activities in Schumann were foiled, an uprising did actually occur in February in Silistra and Ruse. The rebels in Ruse were actually led by none other than Atanas Uzonov, who you'll remember was the hero of defending Vidin in the recent wars with Serbia, as well as some Chetnik actions, uh, Cheta, right, rather, actions in the past. Now, Ozonov was wounded and ultimately fed to Romania with surviving fighters, but he was ultimately executed for his role in this uprising. So just like that, Bulgaria lost another kind of former hero to, well, politics, I guess. Now, While Stambolov wasn't too worried that any of these plots would succeed in their own right, he knew that if it looked as if Bulgaria was actually in a proper civil war, that that would be an ideal excuse for Russian intervention, and that is what he was most concerned about. And while as much as he'd succeeded in foiling these plots, plots were still afoot, even outside of Bulgaria. Now, back in October, Stambolov had sent a representative to Constantinople to help kind of improve relations there. Now, this went well, but the Ottomans also decided to invite Sankov to the capital and thought that Sankov could be a kind of representative of the opposition. In essence, they wanted to ensure that they were on good terms with whoever ran Bulgaria. So, in case Sankov and the pro-Russians came to power, they'd still have some relationships built there. Now, Sankov had already received amnesty for his previous actions in support of the the last coups, but that didn't stop him from using his time in Constantinople to speak out loudly against the regency and generally try to ingratiate himself with the Russians. While there, Tsankov proposed a six-point plan for Bulgaria, which Perry summarized as, quote, abolishing the regency, creating a new government, installing a Russian as minister of war, amnestying Alexander's abductors, convoking the Grand National Assembly to confirm a prince of Mingrelia, which Germany would have opposed, and revise the Bulgarian constitution. 
end quote. So basically, Tsankov's plan for Bulgaria is just to do everything Russia wants. But hold on. Who is the Prince of Mingrelia? You know, I, I, I think of myself as being pretty well-versed in European history and geography, and I had never heard of such a thing. So the Prince of Mingrelia was basically a prince of Georgia, the, the country. And he ran that country as a kind of Russian vassal state. Interesting to think that Bulgaria could have actually ended up with a Georgian royal family had this gone through. And frankly, the choice would have pleased Russia because he was already a subject of the Tsar. And, but yeah, the problem is it would have uh, pleased no one else. Um, in, in essence, choosing the Prince of Mingrelia would have made Bulgaria a client state vis-a-vis Russia. That seems prob- pretty likely. But, well, that would have uh, violated the, the Treaty of Berlin, so it wasn't really going to go anywhere. But in any case, all this made Tsankov a major thorn in the side of Stambulov, and he attempted to solve that issue by inviting Tsankov into his government. Again, you've seen this time and time again, Stambulov is a very practical guy. Even when he dislikes someone, he's usually willing to work with them if it means ultimately getting what he wants. Still, Tsankov rejected the offer. Instead, December 1886 and February 1887 saw two appeals to the Ottomans to occupy Bulgaria. The first by a group of Russophile officers, and the second by Tsankov himself. So, it's kind of remarkable, right? Now, now both Russians and Bulgarians are asking the Ottomans to sort of reoccupy Bulgaria just so they can come back into power. So overall right now, the Regency is facing riots and rebellions by the month while plots swirl in every direction. The Tsar of Russia is so furious that these attempts to overthrow the Regency have failed that he's again arguing for invading Bulgaria, only to again be talked out of it by his foreign minister. Indeed, when Tsankov finally does return to Bulgaria in March, he's arrested and immediately flees to Russia to continue his fight against the Regency and the Regency's government. So by the time spring of 1887 arrived, things were getting even more difficult for Stambulov and the Regency. For one, the government found it impossible to obtain loans on international markets, and so taxes were increasing and general economic malaise and unrest are growing as a result. There also didn't seem to be a lot of good progress in finding that new prince, as most governments were still very hesitant to support Ferdinand, and so support for bringing back Battenberg was actually growing. In fact, the ruling Radoslavov government actually openly called for the return of Battenberg, while Stambulov contacted the former monarch to ask that he please state that he will never accept any offers. Obviously, yeah, Stambulov wanted just to end that whole idea of Battenberg returning, just nip it in the bud, get it over with. And his, but still, this kind of marked a growing rift between Stambulov as the head of the regency and Radoslavov as the head of the actual government. Now, interestingly enough, the exact same delegation who met with Ferdinand had immediately afterwards gone to talk with Battenberg in person and asked whether he perhaps might return. And his answer was surprisingly not no, but not right now, as he believed that soon the German Kaiser would die and that his heir would ditch Bismarck as Germany's chancellor, and that this would open the way for his return as well as his marriage to the crown prince of Germany's daughter. Uh, remember, he wanted to marry her before, but everyone was opposed because, well, basically the prince of Bulgaria marrying the daughter of the Kaiser of Germany would 
you know, tie Bulgaria and Germany together quite strongly. And basically, unless you were Germany or Austria-Hungary, you didn't want that. You know, it's a little complicated. So as a result of all this, Battenberg couldn't be totally discounted. But for the moment, well, everyone was ignoring the fact that his return would almost certainly trigger a European war. So he seems out, but it's all a bit up in the air. But the challenges kept coming. The governor of Russe attempted to improve Russian relations by traveling to Bucharest to discuss the situation with the local Russian ambassador, as well as some local pro-Russian officers, and he was later found dead with a bullet in him on the streets of the Romanian capital. So, yeah, Bulgarian attempts to improve relations with Russia are not going great. At least March brought one bright spot as Great Britain, Austria-Hungary, and Italy signed a series of agreements pledging to preserve the status quo in the Mediterranean. This included supporting the regency in Bulgaria as a move to halt Russian expansion in that direction. So, Stambolos regency is, finally has some international backing, although it's not super strong, but, you know, it's progress. Still, despite the violence and the political intrigue plaguing Bulgaria, some progress was also being made in getting Ferdinand as a new prince. But when in March, Stumble sent a representative to get Ferdinand's written agreement to take the post, uh, Ferdinand was still quite hesitant based on that existing for international opposition. And as spring turned into summer, Stambolov became more and more impatient. The longer the question of a new prince lingered, the more support there was for growing, for returning Battenberg. And as we know, that is a very dangerous proposition for Stambolov and Bulgaria. Ferdinand argued with the Bulgarian representatives, pleading for more time to build international support while being told that Bulgaria needed a prince immediately and that it was critical for him to say yes or no now. Finally, Ferdinand agreed that the regency should formally request that he accept the crown, which it did in April. And, well, he accepted. But then a few later days later, he officially withdrew his candidacy, claiming illness. But the real reason was a letter he received from his uncle, who he had asked to help obtain the support of Otto von Bismarck. The letter had been written to him by Bismarck, and, well, Ferdinand read the contents of Bismarck's letter and uh, change his mind. The letter said, quote, When the question of the Prince of Coburg's candidature for the Bulgarian throne first arose in December last year, the Vienna cabinet adopted a discouraging attitude, and the Russian government one of harsh disapproval and hostility. There is neither any inclination nor any likelihood that the views of these ma two major powers, which are most directly concerned in the Bulgarian question, have changed since then. I know of no reason why this should have happened. In these circumstances, I would advise you not to consent to an acceptance by Prince Ferdinand to the offered candidature. This undertaking, begun against the advice of Austria and against the will of Russia, would, in my opinion, have no prospects. I fear that it would only further complicate the Bulgarian tangle and would give our enemies in Russia new means to exerting an anti-German influence on Tsar Alexander. End quote. So, yeah, this letter is pretty unequivocal. And just like that, Ferdinand's optimism was shattered and he became something of a nervous wreck. And well, yeah, the geopolitics were not getting any better than what was outlined in that letter. 
Russia and Germany had just signed a secret treaty in which Germany recognized Bulgaria as basically being within Russia's sphere of influence in exchange for promising Russia it would never support Battenberg's return to the throne. In essence, most major European powers were basically ready to go for war, go to war over this issue, but all those powers were also hesitant to make a move for fear of, well, launching Europe into a major new conflict. But by this point, Stambolov was done with all the back and forth. He resolved to serve Ferdinand with a fait accompli to force the issue once and for all. To do this, he summoned the Grand National Assembly in June, although he had to lie to the great powers about why it was being summoned. Then, in a secret speech to the session, he read a recently obtained letter from Battenberg, finally stating that he would not return to Bulgaria under any circumstances. And, with that out of the way, there was simply no alternative. The next day, the assembly voted unanimously for Prince Ferdinand to be offered the Bulgarian throne. All that was left was to convince him to accept. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. Uh, I'll quickly note that 1886, a year we finished in this episode, also marked the completion of the Sveta Nadelia church, which is in the middle of Sofia. If you've ever been to Sofia, it's a beautiful dome church just off the central square, clearly visible from uh, Vitesha Boulevard, and I'll include a photo of what it looked like in this blog post. If you're wondering why it looks very different than it does now, we'll talk about that much later in the show. But that means that next time we will continue our coverage of the efforts to convince Ferdinand to accept the position of Prince of Bulgaria, as well as Stambolov's continued tightening grip on power. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music is written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out all the great stuff at bghistorypodcast.com to see, you know, list of important people, timelines, images, all kinds of things worth seeing. And I will catch you in the next one.